0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and then turn with me to the book of Galatians. We're going to continue at the point we left off last week. And we're going to look at four verses this morning with an interlude in between those verses and those verses that we will not deal with in the first part of Galatians. will be dealt with next week, God willing. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, if you'll look at verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole life... Law, rather, is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. The man who is most often associated with what we call the Protestant Reformation was Martin Luther. Luther was born into a middle-class family in what now would be the eastern part of Germany. It was Saxony at the time, part of the Holy Roman Empire. His family was a devout and practicing Roman Catholic family. His father, Hans, was a man who suffered from what one might call an inferiority complex. He was a business owner, albeit a small business, a mining business. refining business, but he always felt like he was not one who was enough to be accepted in the higher echelons of his community. He had four sons, two of whom died during the plague and one who survived besides Martin, his name was James. He had great aspirations for Martin, his son. His aspiration was that he would go to university achieve his master's degree, and then go on to study for the law and become a lawyer. Martin did go to Erfurt to study. He earned his master's degree there. But in the summer, when he was 22 years of age, he found himself caught in a ferocious thunderstorm as he was traveling. And a lightning bolt struck the tree beside the road where he was at the time. It frightened him to the point that he cried out to Saint Anna, who was supposedly the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he said, if you will save me and provide shelter for me from this storm, I will basically go and be a monk. Well, that was quite a drastic response. And to cr- the credit of Martin Luther, he was a man who had been raised to be a person of integrity and he followed the promise. Now, probably he had been thinking about doing that for a long time. But in an effort to please his father, he pushed it aside. He went there, he studied, and he went into the Augustinian sect, and the monastery was led by the man named von Staupitz. And von Staupitz was actually his, that is Luther's, father confessor. And no one of the monks frustrated mm-hmm. von Staupitz like Luther, especially when it came to his confessions. It's said that one time he confessed nonstop for six hours. The man had a problem with sin, you would say, like we all do, really. And von Stoppitz said to him one day, he said, God is not angry at you, Luther. He is finding himself with you, being angry with him. Luther would confess. And then with every confession, he would think of some other way he had opposed God and sinned against God. And virtually all the things he confessed were sins of the mind and the heart, not necessarily of outward action So he was not a guy who was making stuff up. He was just a man who was a very active thinker. And he was honest about his response to what he knew to be sin from Scripture and other things. Well, one day after he had had an especially effective time of confession, he went back to his little room... And all of a sudden, it dawned on him that he was feeling proud about how well he did in confession. So he went back to von Stauffitz. And in frustration, von Stauffitz listened to him one more time. He went to become, went on to become a professor. He earned his doctorate in theology. Very bright and very studious. And he was given the responsibility to be the teacher of the book of Psalms and the writings of the Apostle Paul to those aspiring monks who would come to that monastery to learn and to become qualified to be monks. A miracle happened, as it often does, when a person comes and puts himself or herself in the place to hear the Word of God. He was studying it from the original languages. And as he poured over the book of Romans, he came to the 17th verse of the first chapter, which says, the righteous man lives by faith. This was not the first time that he had read that statement. The record does not record how many times he had. But when he read it that time, a miracle occurred. The Spirit of God spoke to him and revealed to him that it's not by works of the law that a man is being saved, but we are saved by the Lord's grace through faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, and we are given that in Christ Himself. And He was changed. And as the old saying goes, the rest is history. And we ourselves are beneficiaries of the work that that man did. More importantly, to put it properly, the work that God did through this man. The book of Galatians was also a favorite of his. He wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians. And interestingly, John Wesley, many of you know the name John Wesley. Some of you are from a Methodist background. The Wesleyan tradition, as it's so called, it really was a filled in. George Whitfield was the one who was the first pioneer into the Methodist way of thinking. But nevertheless, Wesley was in a reading session, someone simply reading the preface to Martin Luther's treatment of the book of Galatians. And as it was read, and he heard how this book is one that is about the grace of God, and we're saved not by works, but through the work of Christ Himself. We become righteous in Christ, and it's we who become the righteousness of God in Christ. He was just blown away, Wesley was, when he heard this treatment and gave his life to the Lord. The book of Galatians, so far you may be getting tired of it. Sometimes I'm getting tired of it, to be truthful, because how can you say the same thing as creatively as the Spirit of God said it. well, it's not my responsibility as a teacher of God's Word and giving the whole counsel of God to make those determinations. We're still here and we're still learning. But we're getting to a point where we're seeing Paul really nail it down for us. And look at verse 1 of chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. As I was doing my study, I said, well, this seems on the surface to be something that is somewhat redundant. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. But if you know the context of that statement, what has happened in the first four chapters, what you know is it would be legitimate to insert a couple of words and listen for the insertions. It was for freedom from the law, that Christ has set us free from legalism. The law is the law of God. Is the law of God something that's not good? Absolutely not. When you read what Paul has to say about the law of God, in the seventh chapter of Romans, he clearly says the law is unequivocally good. It is perfect. And earlier in that great epistle of Romans... Paul talks about it is our privilege to have the law of God because the law of God makes us aware of our need of a savior. Because, and this is not in the Bible, like Luther, we find great frustration when we try to make ourselves right. There's no end to the need for us to confess. And I'm not saying now that we know Jesus, we don't confess our sin. The Bible says to believers in the book of 1 John that if we say that we have no sin, we are fools. We're fooling ourselves. We're just hoodwinked by our own selves. So if we confess our sins, He is faithful, God being the antecedent of He. And just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of how much unrighteousness? All. So when we do sin, we become aware of it. And what do we do with it? Let me interrupt myself here a moment. A thought entered my mind. Does it pain you when you sin against the Lord? That has been my experience after coming to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I know when I've sinned almost every time. I'd say 95% at least, maybe all the time. But why? Because the Holy Spirit who lives in me, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. And among the things which He will do, He will convince you, convict you of sin. When you sin, Just like that, if you walk with the Lord, He lets you know. And it's a signal to confess and repent. I thought you said earlier, Pastor, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ, that we've been forgiven. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You've told us so many times, and rightly so, because that's the truth. But as we grow from immaturity and infancy spiritually, To become more like Christ, we grow closer to Him. And the closer we come to Him, the more we're exposed to His holiness. And His holiness is that which highlights sinful thoughts, sinful words, and sinful acts in my life. And it's not unique to me, it's for all of us who know Christ. And we want to be right with the Lord in the present not just in the overarching part of all of our lives in Christ, but every part. It was for freedom from the law that Christ set us free. We don't have to strive to keep all the law. Who kept it? The only one who has ever kept it, who? It was Jesus himself who kept it. And Christ has set us free from legalism. Now, what do I mean by legalism? I'm not sure I can give the best definition, but legalism is a lifestyle of making every effort to keep all the commandments of the Lord, not just the Ten Commandments, but associated commandments in Scripture. Paul was a man who understood the stress and strain of keeping up with one's sin and keeping a clean slate with the Lord. He says in his greatest description of his life before he came to meet Jesus as his Lord and Savior, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, he said, now listen carefully, as for the law, I was perfect. He was perfect according to the law of God and all the associated things. As a Pharisee, he would have been. But he still was lost. He was still without hope. He was still striving. He was a zealot. But he did not know the Lord. He was a legalist. And Jesus has quite a few things to say about the scribes and the Pharisees in the Scripture. Perhaps the most concentrated berating of that kind of false religion is recorded in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. In that chapter, listen to what he says. He says, pay attention to the one who sits in the seat of Moses. In other words, listen to the law of God and make appropriate application of what you hear. Submit yourself to the Lord and to His word. But don't do as they do. And then he goes through a series of descriptions to them And one I really remember frequently is you are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, which would what? Defile anyone or any place. That was part of the law of Moses. But what we know is that we don't have to remain in a position of striving. And legalism is that of constantly raising the bar. In a conversation I had as a young pastor, I was struggling with my acceptance in Christ. And I knew in my head that I was perfectly accepted in Christ, but I was fighting my own fleshliness and wanting to be someone who would be admired by other people, and who the Lord would be proud of, and so forth and so on. And he drew me aside, he being at least 20 years older, maybe a little older, old enough to be my father at the time. I was in my early 30s at that time. And he said, Mike, a perfectionist is a failureist. Because a perfectionist always keeps raising the bar. Raising the bar. Raising the bar. And the perfectionist when that person gets really close to evening her or ev- evening her or his life with Christ then all of a sudden the bar goes up higher and higher and Jonah 2:8 in the book of Jonah in the NIV translation says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs having a desire to be perfect in the Lord, we want to be like Christ. That's what happens when the Spirit of God comes to live in us. And He is the one who shapes us into Christ's likeness But the only one who was ever perfect. Paul describes himself as, regarding the law, I was perfect. That was a rather strong statement. And I'm sure it was true, comparatively speaking, when we compare ourselves with each other. Paul said in the book of 2 Corinthians, if we compare ourselves with one another, we are fools. And Paul knew that from personal experience. It was for freedom from the law, having to keep the law in order to be saved, having to keep all of the law, that Christ, who kept all of the law, set us free from legalism and to a life of fruitfulness as we walk by the Spirit of God in the power of the Spirit of God, not in our own energy and creativity. All right, let's read a little further here. Verse 1. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again to a yoke of slavery. Keep standing firm. Perhaps you're aware that Paul and James both talk about standing firm standing up against the enemy Satan and his minions we are to always stand firm on the grace of God that's what Paul is speaking of at this particular juncture always standing firm and he goes on to make another command do not subject be subject rather again to a yoke of slavery and The verb translated, do not be subject, is a word which literally translated, would be translated this way. Stop being subject. Don't even think about it anymore to a yoke of slavery. Before Paul came to know Christ, before these Galatians came to know Christ, and let me pause just a moment to remind you who the Galatians were. The Galatians were people who occupied a plateau not far from the southern coast of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor as it was then, a plateau. In the lowlands around the beach area, there were swampy marshes. And not far beyond, there were these mountains, if you will, or escarpments coming up out of the surface of the earth. And that's where the Galatian churches, there were several. We don't know how many there were, but Paul and Barnabas, when they went there on their first missionary journey, they preached the gospel, and people were getting saved. Now, mind you, there were few, if any, people who were descendants of Abraham who inhabited that region. These people were what they would have called themselves pagans. They were not people who had a monotheistic view that there is one God. They were people who worshiped multiple gods, a lot of superstition associated with. And then here come Paul and Barnabas. And what do they do? They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lo and behold, many, many of those people came to faith. They embraced the gospel. After Paul and Barnabas had finished their first tour and had got those people grounded In the truth, they went back to report from their sending church in Antioch, their home church. And somehow or another word came to them. We don't know how many months or years passed before Paul and Barnabas learned about what was going on in those churches. That there had been these interlopers, these false teachers who had come and they said, it's right to know that Jesus is the son of God. It's right to know that he's the one through whom we must go to know God. But it's not enough to embrace his gift of eternal life. You have to be circumcised in order to be sure that you're at the highest level of spirituality as a follower of Christ. This was done, I'm sure, very smoothly very seductively, because false teachers are not people that turn other people off. They turn them on. And I'm talking about turning on to something that is more kin to what we, in our native approach, would be to salvation. When you look at the world religions today, with very few, if any, exceptions, the large ones in particular, There always is a strong element of what I must do to be saved. Isn't that true? It is so true. And Christianity is set aside quite differently. It's not about what we can do. It's what He did for us. Namely, God the Father and Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit. And Jesus became one of us. He had to become one of us in order to deliver us from our sin. And that's not the half of it. The pain and punishment he submitted himself willingly to that made it possible. So stop being subject again to a yoke of slavery. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who is seeking the Lord. Seeking to know the Lord. You do not yet know Him. You want to know Him. You're trying to do better in your efforts to do better Are not faring well. It could be. If it's not probably. That you are still under a yoke of slavery. Thinking you have to do things. To be forgiven of your sins. You do have to submit yourself to the Lord. Say Lord I give up. Control of my life. To you. And when one does that. That's what the Lord has been waiting for. And He comes and He, believe it, lives in you. Remember what the Bible says in the book of John. But as many as received Him, namely Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. That's the gospel opening our hearts to Jesus, welcoming Him in, and not simply as a guest, but He becomes the one who is the ruler of my life. And to follow the analogy, the ruler of my house, as it were. This is what happens when a person opens his life or her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. This mention of a yoke reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 11. He said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and you will find rest for your soul. Is your soul weary? Are you tired of trying to live life meaningfully on your own? Well, Jesus goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your soul. Do you sense the Lord calling you to himself? And you're coming and all he's asking you to do. And it's, it's a biggie to submit yourself to him. Because the yoke was a sign of submission. The cross is universally associated with the church of Jesus Christ and Christians. But... The yoke should be because it speaks of our needing to live a life of dependence on the Lord in submission to our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let's go and look at the last three verses, beginning with verse 13. For you were called to freedom. In the tradition that I grew up in, in my Local church, which I loved, some of my dearest friends I still communicate with, I came to know in that church. I love the church. We had what I would call an incomplete description of salvation. The idea of justification by faith, by grace, through faith in Christ alone, was very well communicated. But that was just about all that was communicated. That's very important. Sometimes churches today skip over that to the detriment of those who are part of that church or come to that place of meeting and they don't hear about this matter that Galatians is all about, the salvation of God. There was not much on sanctification taught. and the word sanctify, is a word which means to set apart. And sanctification, of course, is the noun form of the word sanctify. And sanctification is the state of becoming more like Christ. We put it this way. The state of growing in Christ. We were born to be growing. We know this spiritual growth that is called for is something that lasts Throughout the entirety of our lives here on earth, and quite possibly, if not probably, into eternity, we'll keep growing in our grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way Peter concludes his last epistle keep on growing. We need to keep on growing. Brothers, we were called to freedom from what? From the law, having to keep it to stay right with God. And then from legalism, being so bound up and worrying about all the little details that we make something that's minor more important than the one thing. And it's not a thing. It's the person of Christ and His work on our behalf. And so we need to continue to grow. In my home church, it was probably every week, at least it seemed that way to me. As a boy in late preteen and into my teen years, and into my actually young adulthood, as adulthood is described today by culture, I was still a boy in so many ways. But at the end of worship services, there'd be the call for me and everybody there, if God was speaking to you, to answer the call of God. That would be biblical. What is his call? Come, follow me. That's what Jesus says on more than one occasion. But the, what followed really was somewhat distorted. Call, some of you are called to be preachers. Some of you are called to be missionaries. Some of you are called to be full-time Christian workers who are not missionaries, are not preachers, but you will support the work of the local church as a vocation, a way of making a living. Well, I'm not against preachers. I are one. But what I do know is the call that's spoken of in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul is not a call to a specific kind of ministry. It is a call to ministry. All of us who know Jesus are called to follow Him. And when we follow Him, we're going to be ministering. I know in this church there are people from all walks of life who are ministering. Their bailiwick is not the church per se. But they are in businesses, some of which they own, others who are employees. We have law enforcement people who have given their lives to be law enforcement people. They first gave their lives to Christ, and they are serving the Lord in law enforcement. And we have medical people. I mean, I could go down the list of every possibility. My father was a truck driver with a ninth grade education. He was a minister of Jesus Christ on the road. Look, if you know Christ, you have been called out of darkness, as Peter writes in the book of 1 Peter, You who are in darkness have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. And you are a royal priesthood. Last time I checked, a priest is a minister. If you know Jesus, you're a priest. Or a priestess. And you need to understand that and see how you're dignified by that. Not that we're looking for dignification if there's even such a word. But... What we are looking for is meaning and purpose. That is God's will for you and for me. What a liberating thing that is. When I heard that from the pastor who finally gave me the whole picture of salvation, God in His grace sent a man to become the pastor of the church that I was a member of and the only one I'd ever gone to since I was two or three years old. And he was the one who taught the whole counsel of God. He explained justification, how you get into the kingdom. He explained sanctification, how you grow into Christ-likeness in keeping with God's will for you, and how there's coming a day, glorification. My first three pastors, they taught about justification and glorification, but they left out the in-between part. And quite frankly, that's a bigger part of our lives, isn't it? Huh? Right? I heard a pastor say one time as he was teaching on the matter, he said, ask, how are you doing? He said, I'm like an old iron bedstead with an old mattress. I'm firm on both ends and sagging in the middle, is what he said. (laughs) You ever feel like that in your walk with the Lord? Well, there's no need for us to stay in that state when the Lord has called us to call upon Him and trust Him for our salvation. And the thing, everyone in this room has the capacity because you're created with a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. And when we surrender to Christ, He comes by His Spirit and He dwells in us. Let's look a little further here in the second part of verse 13. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Now, what is the flesh? It's my personality or yours out from under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. We were created to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by Him. And there's a part of me that really wants to do evil. Even now that I've come to Christ and followed Christ for all these 50 some odd years. But there's that part, there's this tug. And the flesh has a couple of helpers. The world, which is the kingdom of the devil, and the devil himself, who is our tempter. But what we want to keep our hearts fixed on, this passage of Scripture, is this part right here. Do Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity. The word opportunity is a word which is used elsewhere in the New Testament by Paul. It's used outside the New Testament to describe a base camp for an invading army. And we give our flesh a base camp of operation if we're not careful. We give the flesh that opportunity. Here's how it works. We say, I'm forgiven of all my sins. And I'm not going to be punished for them. Christ took it all on Himself. Well, I agree with that. But I have said, I think, today, that the Holy Spirit more than makes me aware of sin when I have sinned. Thank God for the Holy Spirit showing me my sin, nagging me, if you will, to get rid of those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of actions that are fleshly, that are centered in me, my self-centeredness. There are people, I've heard people in this room before. I don't know. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular now, but I have some people in mind I don't think are here today or I wouldn't bring this up perhaps because they think I'm preaching to them, and I would be, frankly, to them. (laughs) I'm preaching to myself mainly, but who have said, wow, isn't it great to be forgiven? I can just do whatever I want to. That reminds me of the bumper sticker that I have seen, and you perhaps have too. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. That is a godless way of living. Because when you know Jesus Christ, even though sin is pleasant for a season, is what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, you don't want to do it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been tempted to sin. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. The next thing you know, there you are again. That means either you don't know Jesus yet, or if you know Him, you have not walked in the truth of this scripture. And that is we're to live day by day, step by step, in close association with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But through love serve one another. I'm going to spend the lion's share of the time we have left right here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a command, obviously. And come to find out, it's not something that's new to the New Testament. We know Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Notice there's a difference between that, a new commandment. And he gives an illustration in himself. You'll love others like I have loved you. You will lay down your life for others. There's an element of that in this command, but it first appears in the book of Leviticus. So if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Leviticus. You may not even know where it is. And if you tried to read it before, you might say, I'll never try it again. It's tough, isn't it? But there are great truths in the book of Leviticus not the least of which is found in verse 18 of chapter 19. You can remember that, 19.18. God speaks through Moses. He says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Aha! Moses. 2,000 years. Not really, more like... 1,300 years before Jesus, a long time. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When I finally had that dawn on me, and I can't tell you how many years ago when I was reading Leviticus it occurred, but I began to think every text has a context. So maybe I can get some help from this teaching of Moses about how I can be a loving neighbor. And sure enough, it's in the context Look at verse 9. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. Why? You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. If we were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, we would... Hear this from the word of God. The poor you will always have with you. I've scratched my head many times. Why, Lord, if you're the giver of all things, you couldn't, couldn't you eliminate hunger in the world? Well, that would require the wiping out of mankind because we're selfish. We worked hard to earn that money. You ever said that or heard somebody say that? We do work hard. And in working hard, we're doing what God says. Whatever your hand finds to do. In the book of Ecclesiastes, do it with all your might. In parenthesis, I would say, independence upon the Lord. But the Bible says in Deuteronomy 8, you were given wealth by God. He gave you the gifts and the opportunities and the temperament and the background of upbringing in your family so that you worked hard. And what you're to do? The, what does the Lord God say? For, give something to the needy and for the stranger. This would be an alien, as it's described in many translations, a foreigner. I am the Lord your God. You see the grace of God in that. For the one who gives, yes, because we give as unto the Lord. We're obeying the Lord. Look at the next statement in verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. That's pretty straightforward. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. This is the way well-to-do people would treat those whom they employed at times. They wouldn't return to them what those people had given to them as collateral. And you know what it was usually? It was their outer garment. It's all they had at night to keep them warm. But they would withhold it from them, and I don't know what for. Do you know the word or the idea, menace? I think it's a southern way of saying menace. But meanness, I I used to hear my grandmother and those associated in her age group say, that man is just full of meanness. Well, these kind of people who withhold people what's due to them, they are people who are described here in the profane, the name of God, holding money back from people who it is owed. And that would not just be people who are in debt to you, but you may be in debt to people. I'm talking to someone probably here who knows you have not paid back what you borrowed from somebody. And if there was an agreement on the front end when that person gave you that money that you're going to pay it back, what's the big deal? Where's the holdup? Give it back. Find a way. Communicate with that person. Verse 14 says, you shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. We're to care for a people who are handicapped. And we're to treat them as they are human beings who have an impediment that God uses in many cases. Some of the most devout, most winsome followers of Christ I've known are people who have handicaps. Truth be told, all of us have handicaps. Right? Yeah, I'm my biggest handicap. Look at verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. In other words, be fair, be just. You shall not be partial, not like this especially, to the poor, nor defer to the great. You know that verse of Scripture that's quoted in the New Testament? God is no respecter of persons. You know that? He, he loves the poorest and he loves the richest of his people and everybody in between. So I should not defer to a wealthy person or to a poor person over anybody. I need to be... I'm trying to look for the word. I hadn't planned to say it, so I don't know how to say it, but I have it in my mind. Discriminatory, I guess is the word. But based on the way a person has things in his or her life. Verse 16 says, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. There again, that's self-explanatory. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. That's where hate begins, isn't it? It's on heart issue. The Bible warns us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, that we are not to let a root of bitterness grow up in our heart because it will not only contaminate you and me, it will contaminate all the people around us. If you're harboring unforgiveness, let go of it. You cannot reach your potential as a follower of Christ. And you're going to mess up a lot of other lives in your nuclear family and in your associations because that bitterness poisons the minds and hearts of others in your sphere. Middle of 17, you may surely reprove your neighbor. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If I know a friend in Christ and that person is engaging in behavior that is not in keeping with God's word I'm not being a friend to not talk in love to such a person. We're going to look at that a little later in the sixth chapter of Galatians, by the way. But shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Think about that. Look at it. There's more in that chapter that could apply, but we're going to about run out of time if we don't go on and not complete what we're looking at. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Now they weren't eating each other's flesh, but they were backbiting and to devour, the first part, of that statement where it talks about not bite to bite but is a little milder word, believe it or not, than devour. This means eating. It was used outside the New Testament to describe eating all the meat off the bone. And sometimes we're like a school of piranha. Have you ever seen that? That scares me to death to even think about it. I never want to go into Brazilian waters swimming or wading or fishing how they just, and in a matter of minutes, they can devour an entire, entire cow. But what we know here is our words can kill people. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we need to be careful. We need to take care lest we be consumed by one another. There's a phenomenon in the world of animals. It's called filial cannibalism. And I saw some examples of it before I even thought about this passage of scripture recently. One, I'll just say one, there was a big python cannibalizing uh, another big python. Wow. That took a while to digest that meal. But we need to understand, we are people who need to guard our tongue. Read James chapter 3 for a commentary on this. And we need to be people who yield our tongues to God as not a weapon of unrighteousness to cut people down, but as a weapon of of righteousness and use our words to build people up. The Apostle Paul speaks often of the matter of our being in the positive relationship with one another. And among the things he says about that, and I looked up there 30 times at least in the New Testament, the overwhelming majority of which came from the pen of the Apostle Paul to do something for one another. Accept one another. That's found in the book of Romans. Build up one another. That's found in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Honor others above yourself. Again, in the book of Romans. Care for one another. Share with one another. All these things. This is the heart of the Spirit of God. And Paul had such a heart as he thought about this whole matter of being a person who walks in the Spirit. We're going to learn more about walking in the Spirit here in a couple weeks. It's getting into some really awesome truth, not that what we've studied before is not awesome, it's all God's Word. but We need to walk by the Spirit. Let me simply say, what does it mean? I'm repeating myself. To walk by the Spirit means to surrender your life to the Holy Spirit's leadership and depend upon Him exclusively for what you think. And you say, how in the world is that possible? Well, He has made the possibility of our having total access to the mind of Christ. Did you know that? Holy Spirit coming to live in me gives me a direct access to the mind of Christ. And where is it found? In the Word of God. We read the Word of God. Not to get smarter. There is a legitimacy to becoming wiser. And that's only to be found by submitting ourselves to the truth of God's word. But we actually can think the thoughts of Christ after him. Because they're represented in this word. And he can have access to us. He can do whatever he wants to. But he limits himself to the degree that he wants us to submit to him. Otherwise, it would be forced, and he does not want to force that. He wants us to yield to him so that he could use us to bring glory to his name. I'm going to read four verses to end. This is from the book of Romans, chapter five, the last two verses of chapter five of Romans. And the first two of verse 6. Take these home. I want to give you an assignment. Take these home and think about them. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for being such a good father to us. Oh, Lord, forgive me, forgive us for not appreciating who you are. Forgive us for being wayward children. And Holy Spirit, thank you for coming to indwell us Thank you for making us aware as children of the Father of sinning when we sin. Thank you for just wearing us out until we admit and submit to you that we need your guidance. And Jesus, how can we say thank you enough to you for becoming one of us? And you endured the cross scorning its shame, in order that your blood would pay the price for our sin acceptable to the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.